Strangely enough, I learned from this Muslim apologist how to defend my own Protestant Christian faith. Not because of what he did right, but kind of because of what he does wrong. He uses a specific type of argument that's absolutely devastating if you don't know how to respond to it. Luckily, I've got a strategy for you today that you can use to defend your faith, not only from Muslims, but also from a person of any faith who would try to wield this particular type of argument against you. I want you to be equipped in any situation in which people question your faith. And you don't have to be a professional apologist to do this. So by the end of this video, you'll be able to recognize when someone's using this particular argument, you'll know how to respond with maximum effectiveness, and as a result, you'll feel much more confident in having productive conversations about your faith. To get started, let's listen to the video from Ahmed Didat. This is the person that I showed you a picture of a minute ago, and this will give us a baseline example to begin working from. If Jesus is God, I would like you to show me one verse, only one statement anywhere in your Bible, any version of the Bible where Jesus says, I'm God, or where he says, worship me. So that's the argument from DDOT. If you're so confident that Jesus is God, where does he say that? Where is that written? The implication, of course, is that your belief is unreasonable unless you can show where Jesus says those exact words. If you're anything like me, the first time I heard that argument, your head might be spinning a little bit. Where is that written? Did Jesus ever actually say that? But let's slow down and think about it for a minute. Is it actually necessary for Jesus to have said those exact words for those things to be true? Is that a fair presumption? With that in mind, let's see how David Wood, a Christian apologist, responds to DDOT's argument. I'd be happy to show you where Jesus said, I am God, worship me. As soon as you show me where he said, I'm only a prophet, don't worship me. In those exact words. No other words. I want just the words, I'm only a prophet, don't worship me. That's what Muslims believe about Jesus, right? Well, if you can't show me those exact words, the Islamic view of Jesus must be false. He's a little bit snarky, but rightfully so. Wood responds with a similar challenge himself, answering the question with another question, essentially saying, if you want me to show you a single verse where Jesus says, I am God, which is my belief, you need to show me a single verse where Jesus articulates your belief that Jesus is just a prophet. Where does he say that? Where is that written? And this is a clever response, not just because it creates a mic drop moment, but because it reveals how disingenuous the Muslim's original argument was. DDOT implies that the only way your faith is reasonable is if Jesus says those words explicitly in your scripture. And if he doesn't, you should abandon those beliefs because Jesus never explicitly said them. So David offers a reasonable response consistent with the logic of Ahmed Didat and turns that same logic back on him. Does Jesus express what you believe explicitly? And if not, you, by your own logic, should abandon your faith. If it's a problem for me, it's a problem for you. This strategy reveals that the original argument was simply sophistry. And more specifically, it's a type of invalid argument, sometimes called an inappropriate presumption. But more on that in a minute. Let's quickly look at another example, this time from the late apologist Nabil Qureshi, and it will help us understand this particular type of argument further. Notice the similarities and the differences between our first clip and this one. Let's take a look. So because you're coming at it from a historical standpoint, um, another thing that adds, like the historical evidence that adds, uh, like that supports this argument, is that the concept of Trinity, the word Trinity itself, it doesn't appear as a theological term till near the end of the second century after Jesus. These are great questions. Get, uh, um, yeah. Don't go anywhere. What's your name? Uh, Munzer. Munzer, where are you from? Uh, I'm from Pakistan. Pakistan. Um, I had the exact same questions when I, was, uh, when I, when I practiced Islam. So first, and um, let me give you an answer before, if you feel like interjecting, we can talk afterwards. 
First, I want to point out you are absolutely right. The term Trinity is not used till the end of the second century. What is the doctrine of God called in the Quran? In Islam, what is the doctrine of God called? Uh, Tawheed. Tawheed. Is that in the Quran? Uh, I mean, no, the word Tawheed. The word Tawheed is a derived word from Ahad. Alhamdulillah. Yes. Good. So you understand the word Tawheed is not itself in the Quran. In the same way, the word Trinity is not itself in the Bible. This doesn't pose a problem. The Shahada is not found in the Quran. You have the components of the Shahada in the Quran, but uh, you do not, hold on, you do not have La ilaha illallah Muhammad Rasulullah in that way found in the Quran. Notice the similarities and differences between our first clip and this one. The focus here is on the broader doctrine of the Trinity, rather than specifically the divinity of Jesus himself. But once again, the question can be boiled down to, where is that written? That's basically what's being asked. And this is the essence of the inappropriate presumption. The implication is that if the Trinity or whatever doctrine is being attacked, if it's not written in the Bible, it's unreasonable to believe in that doctrine. Nabil uses a similar technique as what David Wood said. The critique from our Muslim friend is that the name by which we call the Christian doctrine of God, the Trinity, is not in our holy book. Nabil coolly points out that in Islam, it's, you have the exact same problem. The doctrine of God in Islam, Tawheed, isn't in the Quran either. It isn't in your holy book. So if it's a problem for Christianity, it's a problem for Islam. You have to be consistent. And if you watch the video, the Muslim tries to wriggle out of the answer, but ultimately he is unable to. Another thing to point out that is more obvious in this video is Nabil's desire to promote understanding with his response. He isn't being snarky or just trying to win an argument or have a mic drop moment. He's actually using the strategy to help the questioner come to a deeper understanding of of his own position, the Christian position. This should absolutely be our goal anytime we're in a kind of faith or apologetic conversation. And it's something that's critical to keep in mind once I reveal this ultimate strategy we have for you today. But what's wrong with just doing this, you might ask? Why do I need some other ultimate strategy if I can just imitate what Nabil and David Wood did? Can I just turn the tables with a snappy response? The problem for you is that both of these responses that we're looking at come from people that have a very deep understanding of their opponent's faith, the person sitting across the table from them, their faith. David specializes in debating Muslim apologists, and Nabil Qureshi was raised a Muslim and was a Muslim for most of his life. So they were obviously very well-versed in the theology of the other and able to quickly identify a slick answer that would actually be really effective for that particular listener. But what if you were confronted in this way and you don't have a background knowledge of Islam or maybe someone from the Baha'i faith is asking you about the doctrine of the Trinity and you don't know anything about the Baha'i faith? How are you going to come up with some kind of snarky response that quickly fits exactly into their theology and shows them the tables are turned. Of course, if a Muslim asks you, where is the Trinity written? Or where does Jesus say that I'm God? You now have a response because you've heard these two videos and you can absolutely use that. But it's not very diverse for you unless you want to do an in-depth study of every possible religion to prepare for this, which isn't really realistic. And you don't need to because we have a strategy for you. It's almost time to reveal a strategy that disarms any apologist from any faith. But to make sure we understand how and when to use it, we first need to examine the inappropriate presumption itself. In what situation are we using this strategy? And why is this sort of argument a fallacy? It's important to understand this. The reason is because it demands an explicit statement when an implicit statement is perfectly reasonable. What I mean is this. We've all probably been in circumstances where someone is avoiding answering a question. Super annoying, right? Maybe they're deflecting in their answer. Like if the teacher tells you you're failing this class because you never turn your homework in on time. Well, you see, that is an interesting point, but let's focus on the broader issue. 
That's a dumb deflection. Or they might give you a vague response, something like, are you interested in any girls that you met at the party? You know, I'm just trying to keep my options open. That's not very helpful either. These are situations where you probably want and need an explicit response, something very clearly stated. Just answer the question, yes or no. Stop dodging the question. But there are other situations where an explicit response maybe isn't necessarily expected. For example, when I get home from work after a long day, I walk into the house, I put my keys in our key bowl, and I say hello to my wife. Imagine, though, if I'm getting home particularly late after a long day at work, and I say to her, honey, I've had a long day, I'm just going to go straight to bed. I'm barely keeping my eyes open as it is. After I walk away from that interaction, can she draw the conclusion that I'm feeling tired? I didn't explicitly state that I was tired, but it's not too much of a stretch for her to read between the lines, look at my body language, and of course she knows Stephen is tired. An inappropriate presumption occurs when a person mixes up those two different types of scenarios, acting like an explicit statement is needed when an implicit statement is perfectly reasonable. They are inappropriately presuming that an explicit statement is needed. This is why in a religious conversation, it often manifests itself in some form of the question, where is that written? Where does Jesus say in the Bible blank? Why is the doctrine of the Trinity not in the Bible? Where is that written? And this is a massive obstacle to having a productive faith conversation. If they're expecting a single quote or a verse that states what you believe in its entirety, one, that statement or verse probably doesn't exist. Lots of things aren't explicitly stated in scripture from any religious background. You don't just have to be a Protestant Christian for that to be true. And two, they're likely not genuinely interested in understanding your position. This kind of argument generally comes from the kind of person who's just trying to win an argument rather than understanding and having a good faith dialogue. And unfortunately, that kind of strategy typically works. If someone asks you, where does Jesus say, I am God, worship me? And you start to fumble with your answer, or you start to explain how the Old Testament prophesies, and you get into these prophecies and these foreshadowings and typology and all that kind of stuff that's true and good, but is kind of confusing, they can just interrupt you and say, see, they clearly don't have a good answer. And any casual observer would probably agree with them. It really makes them look like they have the most reasonable position because it was easily articulated and their question kind of trapped you. So now the solution. We need to make the questioner and any other onlookers understand that what's being used is a fallacy. And we need to do it in a way that opens them up rather than shuts them down further. We also can't assume that in any situation in which this happens to you, you will know what that person believes well enough to come up with a response like David Wood or Nabil Qureshi's. So the ultimate strategy is surprisingly simple, but that doesn't mean it always comes naturally. When emotions are high and you feel like you have to give a strong defense for your faith, you might be tempted to just jump right in and start answering the question with everything that you know, as, as little or as much as that might be. But as I've already said, answering with all the nuances of your theology is probably not going to work out too great. Instead, when someone asks you some derivative of the inappropriate presumption saying, where is that written? I want you to answer them with the question, what do you mean by that? Asking them, what do you mean by that? meets all of our requirements for a good response. It sidesteps away from trying to answer their logical fallacy, which in all likelihood would make you look kind of dumb. It invites them into further conversation by asking them a question, and it doesn't require you to know anything about what they already believe. In fact, it requires that you really don't know what they believe because you're asking them to explain. What do you mean by that? What do you believe about this? And this is to your advantage. I'll give you an example to show you how this strategy can be used for maximum impact. And of course, remember that in this context, we're going to take a page out of Nabil Qureshi's book and maximum impact means having a compelling and productive conversation that clarifies your position. We're seeking in apologetic conversations to win souls, not to win arguments.
So for this example, we're going to pivot from Islam to a religion that I have a lot more experience with recently, and that's going to be Catholicism. I've interacted a ton with them lately from my videos on Sola Scriptura and the sufficiency of scripture and stuff like that. Lots of interactions with Catholics. So for this example, we're going to be looking at the Catholic apologist Tim Staples, and he's answering a Protestant in regards to the doctrine of sola fide, or justification by faith alone. Is as explicitly as I can imagine contradicted by St. James and James 2.24. In fact, Andre, what I found is the only place in the entire Bible where the words faith alone are found, the words not by are right in front of them. We see then that a man is justified by works and not by faith alone. So if I was speaking to Tim Staples and he made this particular point, I would immediately first become aware of the possible inappropriate presumption fallacy that's happening. And this is because he is sort of implying that sola fide needs to be explicitly stated. It's a really good line to say that the only place that the words faith and alone are together is where the Bible says not by faith alone. It's really compelling, but it's it's another tricky way of saying, where is that written? Where is it written that you're saved by faith alone? So if you are able to perceive in that line, dig through the wordplay and perceive that the implication is that your view needs to be explicitly defined in a verse somewhere, and the reason why he's not Protestant is because he couldn't find that. Now you know, this is some kind of derivative of where is that written? And you can use our ultimate strategy from today. He's not expecting you to be able to find it anywhere. He's read the Bible. He knows it's not there. So this isn't really to have a conversation. This is about winning the argument and convincing the other person. You need to switch to my faith because you, where, what you believe isn't explicitly written. So once I understand this, I use our strategy. I'm going to ask, what do you mean by faith alone? What do you think that faith alone means? And once they answer that question, now I have something to actually respond to. Maybe they say something like, it means that as long as you believe in Jesus, you get to go to heaven even if you're not a good person. Even Hitler, in your view, could go to heaven. Well, that's a very understandable misunderstanding of justification by faith alone, and it's something that we can begin to work on. We can have some back and forth. Maybe I share with them Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, which says that we're saved by faith alone and not by works. But at the same time, we could look at Matthew seven seventeen, which says that a good fruit a good tree produces good fruit. And we can kind of start to talk about how those two verses relate. And even, I believe, Tim Staples brings in James 2. Well, we can bring James 2 into this and talk about how they all relate. And we're having a conversation at this point. It's not as much of a confrontation as much as it is a conversation. Hopefully, since they've shared their point of view, they've opened up a little bit and they're much more likely to listen to your explanation, even if it's the nuanced explanation that you would have wanted to give from the beginning. By asking them a question and inviting them to share their own thoughts on a matter, you start to bring their wall down. Now they might have a chance of listening. So remember, when you hear someone present an argument along the lines of, where is that written? You can answer with the question, what do you mean by that? Once you know that, there's only one other thing you need, and that is an in-depth knowledge of your own faith. You don't need to know every other faith out there. You just need to know what you believe and why. If you don't know the Bible yourself and why you believe what you believe, a clarifying question like what I share with you today wouldn't work anyway because you wouldn't have anything to follow it up with. That's why it's so important that we spend time in God's word every day. Not only will it prepare you to defend your faith like what 1 Peter chapter 3 says, but it also will honestly enrich your life and improve your relationship with God. Now, to apply what you've learned today, how would you respond to someone who comes up to you and says, where does the Bible teach sola scriptura? Boom. How do you respond? Think about how you would answer based on what we talked about today. And then once you've come up with your answer, leave a comment and then watch this video where I defend sola scriptura against an extremely compelling Catholic critique. Until next time, my name is Stephen, and this has been My Apologies.